Welcome to the Road Untraveled podcast, the show where we share the amazing journeys of exceptional investors making an impact across the VC industry. Our guests come from tech ecosystems around the globe and each have their own perspective on where innovation is headed. We'll explore the different paths that these investors took to get to where they are today, the challenges they've faced, and the lessons they've learned along the way. A little bit about me, I'm your host, Brian Hollins. I help lead an early stage venture capital firm called Collide Capital. If you're a founder building software for the future and want to share your idea, please check us out at www.collidecap.com and find a way to get in touch. But for now, I'm thrilled to take you to our latest episode of the season. So thanks for joining us and welcome to The Road Untraveled. Welcome back to The Road Untraveled, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Super excited for today's conversation. Ben Lair, founder and managing partner of Lair Hippo. Ben, I appreciate you joining me, man. Good to see you. Good seeing you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Give us a story. Tell us the Lair Hippo story. Give us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get to uh, How'd you get to where you are today? Well, I thought we were only going to talk about golf. I didn't. I was not. I didn't prepare any of this uh, content. Um, okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to do this quick. Uh, grew up in New York. Came back to New York after college, and pretty shortly thereafter, started a media company that was theoretically going to be venture backed, except I couldn't really find any venture money in New York. New York was a sort of nascent tech ecosystem. I, that sounds sort of unbelievable to imagine that, you know, 12, yeah. 13 years ago, New York was a slow startup city, but it was, and, uh, found some money from cats and dogs and random sources, got my business going and was, a you know, one of a small group of quote unquote tech entrepreneurs in New York at that time and started making a few angel investments in other people sort of in the ecosystem who I became friendly with. City was super collaborative at that point. Everyone knew each other. Everyone helped each other. It was, it was awesome. Then as New York started to gain a little bit more steam, we had the idea that the deal flow was actually pretty proprietary or, or unique and wanted to professionalize the angel investing a little bit. And so raised a small first fund, no institutional investors, really no thesis aside from invested my friends starting things in, in town. And the, the bet that New York was going to pop was right. And New York started to grow and we had a lucky market timing that we were one of the folks that built a reputation for being people you called for early stage money. And over the next, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, New York, more than 10 X in size in terms of the number of startups, I think very importantly, diversified in terms of the kind of businesses, 10, 12 years ago, it was almost entirely consumer. It's become a market that you can find great talent in sort of pretty much any uh, industry, any kind of space you could possibly imagine stuff is happening in New York now. And all the while, as we scaled the fund and continued to do what we do, I built my business and raised a bunch of money from both institutional VCs and, uh, strategics and almost destroyed the company many times. And, uh, you know, went through the full founder experience, the highs and the lows, uh, and last March sold the operating company after, you know, sort of doing, really doing it. And the, you know, built a, a pretty big thing that was working and that, uh, 
I take a lot of pride in, but that was really hard. And, and, um, for the last few years, I think was, was trying to figure out how to rationalize doing two jobs full time. It was just a lot. Uh, and there were days where I felt like I was the luckiest guy in the world doing both. And it made, I was a better investor because I was an operator. I was a better operator because I was an investor, but eventually, uh, wanted to sort of be doing this full time. And so for the last year have been, um, fast forward, we've been doing pretty much the same thing for the last 10 years. Um, I think we're getting better and have gotten better as time has gone on. Um, and you know, more patterns to recognize and more, you know, experiences to sort of draw from and, and I'd say most importantly, just a bigger and bigger network. And so we've now done over 400 deals over the course of 12 years. We have a little over a billion dollars under management and we're first institutional check or around the first institutional check into businesses across the whole tech ecosystem. Yeah. What do you think is true today in venture that wasn't true when the firm started? What are some of the things you'd point to? Maybe pros and cons. Let's not, let's not call them all cons. Like, are there certain things that you think are developmental or, or good for the space? that might just not have been around or might not have been as formulated back then? Yeah, I think there's good and bad. I think on the, the good, I think that this is a, a real asset class now. I think that yeah. there is a, uh, like there was a time where, where I think the perception and maybe the reality was that this was some haphazard, like, you know, shotgun, like, you know, you just like you're betting on like, Everything's a moonshot and, and there's no way to think about a structured, repeatable return model and profile in venture and particularly in early stage venture that, that made for a sort of mature asset class that the best talent wanted to work in. I think that, that there's been a ton of development around that in a, in a really good way. I think the sort of negative that comes maybe as a product of that is actually over capitalization, too much money, too many people who want to play in this space because it's proven to be too good a space and the returns have maybe been too good, at least on paper. Uh, and so you end up with a bunch of tourists, folks, a bunch of folks who are sort of retiring into venture, uh, like, oh, you know, I, I worked hard and now I want to not work hard and I want to go be a venture investor and make other people yeah. do the hard work. And I think that this market is forcing people to recognize that this is, that is not what this is. This is all, this is going to be a, a competitive challenging space, but with, uh, where the best folks are going to do really well. I think I, overall, I think it's, it's, it's good. It's healthy. It's, it's, it's maturation, but, uh, you know, with, with, with that comes some detractors. Yeah. I've always appreciated that, you know, you're on fun date, but you know, still, still very hungry. And it, it doesn't look like the traditional Sand Hill Fund 8. I still see the work that you all do to build the New York ecosystem, the work you do to build your team and the culture. It, it's very, very much still a growing uh, enterprise over there at Lair, which I, which I appreciate. Thanks, um, man. Let's talk a little bit about some of the qualities of founders that you've sort of found yourself sort of leaning towards or being, being attracted to. You know, you yourself were one of them. Are there certain qualities that you think have really started to maybe underline the businesses that have done well in the portfolio that you could point to? I think that, that there are certainly some, some high level things that we look for. I, I would say that one of the, 
one of the challenges with being an early stage investor is you need to set rules and then you need to be cool breaking them um, because it, it's an ever-changing space and because these are all sort of snowflakes and these very unique special circumstances. I think if you have too much of a playbook and you rinse and repeat, yeah. we've seen this, that like whatever that rinse and repeatable playbook is might work great for a minute, but it's not going to work forever. There's a, too many smart people around and too much competition and like people will find their way into disrupting whatever feels comfortable. And so I think there's some, some things that we're maybe particularly keen on today. These are things we come back to. You sort of get focused on important stuff and then you lose track of it and then you come back to it and you remember that this is, this is a good, you know, like don't, don't erase this from the whiteboard. I'd say one of them is being really focused on founder uh, market fit just in terms of sort of a person building the space that they have a right to win in, not just, you know, I, I, I'm scared of these sort of business school project companies where somebody sees a, you know, market gap based on some TAM calculation and some like, you know, idea of disruption and they want to go tackle a space. Bis great businesses get built that way, but I like someone who has a little bit of unfair advantage, not necessarily in a market, but in maybe, maybe in a business model, maybe in a go-to-market sort of rhythm, whatever it is, you want somebody who's got some, some right to win. I will say that that's a rule that you then violate when you meet somebody who you think is just so epically high potential and special and, and you feel yourself drawn to and unwilling to bet against that you give somebody you know, you invest in someone who has maybe on paper, no right to win. But again, I think generally that, that right to win thing does bias us towards more experienced folks, towards people who are on maybe their second or third company and who have learned some of those hard lessons, made some of those mistakes. I certainly value just personally, I know that I am a way, way, way better bet. If I, if I was to found something again, which I am not going to do, I would be a way better bet this time. All Lair Hippo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. making sure you're listening. Yeah, don't know, don't worry. Okay. I, I don't think anyone has any questions about this. You know, but, but if you are, uh, I, I'm a way better bet the next time around than I was the first. Yeah. That is, that, I, I believe that in my bones. And so I bring that, and I think we as a fund bring that when we look at companies. Um, and then I would say just very importantly, in terms of the, what someone is building, can we, like, we are practical, maybe to a fault, like, does this business need to exist? Does this person's view of the future align with what we think a somewhat likely version of a better future looks like? And are we. Like, how hard do we have to squint to imagine that a thing could be a thing or does this feel in our, in our gut, like they're building, they're building for the world. That's going to be the one that we're going to live yeah. in. And so I think a lot of companies, particularly in a hype cycle, like people just get, like things just get funded, like a smart person building a thing that feels exciting gets funded. But I think sometimes there isn't, there isn't that step back to say, does this company really need to exist? If this thing doesn't get built, like, how's the world going to be different? How is the category going to be different? How are consumers going to be different? How are we going to like get out of bed as, and I don't mean that every company has to, has to save the world. I just mean that are people building things that really need a matter and that if they went away, people would care. And 
we violated that rule many times, but I think generally when we do, we regret it. Yeah, that's super interesting. You talked a little bit about second time, third time founders and this, this experience of sort of backing folks who have done before. They're, those are also hard cap tables to get on. And so reflect a little bit on sort of the value add that you think is important now sitting in this seat. What, what are some of the things that you think the best funds are doing for their founders and, and sort of earning that right to be the institutional lead on a seed round of someone who's done it two or three times and has their own money? So I think a few things. One is the the idea that you when you've done this for a long time and you've done it pretty well and you've generally treated people well and you've built a reputation for yourself and aligned yourself with a lot of winners, that that creates, I think, great deal flow. I think it creates right to win as an investor that, you know, like good deals beget good deals to some degree. And the number one thing that we can do to win is to bring our founders to the table, our existing founders, and say, this is what it's like working with us. Here's companies, by the way, that have worked out well, and they can talk about what it's like working with us. Here's companies that haven't worked out as well, but these are still like normal, good people who, by the way, maybe the not working out well is, you know, a, a company that goes to the moon and a company that doesn't, that, that ends up shutting down. Sometimes it's, you know, a bad weekend. It's like, you know, you, you miss time, the, the fundraise, a, a debt provider pulls out at the last minute, you know, like timing matters a lot. And so there's great, I think it's important for us to try and not only align ourselves with the companies that are, you know, the big ones in the deck in terms of your big outcomes, but like recognize that every founder is really like laying it on the line. And so using our founders as the backstop for, for how a founder can think about working with us. One, two, just, I think that, uh, knowing what you are and knowing the role that you're going to play on a cap table and being able to articulate that clearly is important for people who have done it before. They know what they're looking for. They know what they want from investors. They know what they don't. They know where they want to be independent. They know where they need thought partners. By the way, this isn't to say that they have everything figured out because we're all learning. But I think there are folks who, who have a generally good shape of how they're thinking about their relationships with investors. And we have a, I think, pretty nuanced philosophy in how we think about our relationships with entrepreneurs. And so we're not going to be the right fit for everybody. We can communicate. This is what it's like working with us. This is how we think about our relationship and our responsibilities. This is a two-way street and here's how it works. And here's why we think this makes sense and why it creates good outcomes. We've got a bunch of data that suggests that it creates good outcomes from historical performance. But, you know, if your, if, if your shape of what you're looking for in this relationship is similar to ours, I think we've got a pretty strong case to be made that we're going to be a good investor and, you know. What, what would you point to as some of the fails or reasons some of the businesses in the portfolio, you, you don't, you don't have to, you know, I know you love all your children equally, but just talk, talk about some of the businesses that haven't been able to get over the debt provider pulling out or haven't been able to get over the customer that dropped out. Like what are some of the qualities of resiliency or businesses that just kind of find a way to keep cracking that you think are important or that you might share with some of your younger companies? Yeah. So a few things. So uh, on the, on the less tactical side, or maybe the less tactical side, there's something that I used to talk about as an operator a lot in, at, at Group Nine in my media business, which was this, I, and I would say this and 
you know, I think it can hit people the wrong way. So I like to explain them what I mean, which is I would always remind people not to hope. Say no hope. People would be like, no hope. That, well, it's not a very nice, you know, but no, for, for me, what that means is don't expect anyone to bail you out. Don't expect like, well, everything can be okay if we just deliver on this like totally ridiculous financial plan or as long as our last round investor is willing to do the next round as well and bridge us like people who are basically expecting something to happen for them or someone else to share responsibility for their business's success find themselves in disappointing situations repeatedly as recently as today in my portfolio unpleasant things happen when people don't take total responsibility for the outcome um and uh i would say the more tactical version of that is companies that are that don't develop real discipline early around how they forecast their business about how they communicate performance and updates to their investors and to their employees with transparency transparency and clarity companies that do things like punting on board meetings early because we don't have a structured board yet, build bad habits. They don't build with a kind of accountability that like I, I built a hundred board decks in my life. It's a pain in the butt. It takes time and there is a way to rationalize it being a distraction from the important things that you should be doing in your job. At the same time, that is developing a muscle around being introspective, around looking at how you're performing on paper relative to what you tell yourself and your investors and your employees is what performance needs to look like in order for you to take the next step as a company. And so I'm a big believer in, in just accountability in every way, shape and form for founders, for companies, all the way through, by the way, to investors. Uh, to making sure that your investors do what they promise you, uh, to making sure that, you know, employees at venture funds, I, I think that, that funds have an opportunity to do a better job managing their employees the way that they expect their portfolio companies to manage employees. Mm. I think we need a demand not only that you do a good job, you know, deploying a portfolio, uh, you know, deploying capital into, into good returns, but that you fulfill your obligations to companies and how you're going to work with them and how you're going to support them through thick and thin. And, uh, it's not to say that in every circumstance, every investor is going to be a hero, but I just think that accountability is critically important up and down and all around. And, and that that's the place where companies miss. Look, there's a million other reasons, yeah. you know, there's like yeah. wrong timing. There's, you know, wrong, go to market. There's wrong products. There's a million things yeah. or there's in your control stuff. You know, sitting on the wrong leaders in your business for too long and not making changes there. But like all of it in some way, shape or form for me boils down to if you're really willing to be honest with yourself and bring the data about what's working in your business and not working in your business to the forefront and examine it and own it and continually operate towards not just existing, but, but being better, good things come. What are some of the 
structural sort of key insights you'd share, you know, as you, as, as you think about hiring and call it, you know, first 10, first 20, like what are, what are some of the best practices you'd share with some of the younger founders that are listening around what things need to be put in place in order for the business to really have a sound backbone to start to build with? So I think a few things, but probably the most important one is part of the sound backbone is to not overcomplicate the backbone. When you're an early company, you, I think there's an inclination, there's all this excitement. There's like, you know, whatever amount of money you raised feels like a lot, you know, I know that feeling the money hits and you're like, we're rich, we're rich. Like, you know, and, and I think that there is a, I think companies try to do too much. They try to boil the ocean. They try to be, you know, they're like doing a top down and bottoms up sales motion. They're doing a, they have, you know, three different products that they're taking to market simultaneously. Sometimes it's a, a core bet and then a hedge bet, whatever it is. I think in the early days, you have to decide the thing that you're going to own, that you're going to be better at than anybody else. The, you know, one, two, three core metrics that underlie you actually doing that and being honest with yourself about if you are doing that and be maniacal. There's, there's a bunch of, you know, there's companies that are sort of, there's people who will chase top line revenue. That's like not core to what they're actually building for, but helps them tell some series A story. I just think we're, we're in a market now where there's enough sophisticated investors that particularly in the current backdrop, you're not going to trick folks with, with some of these vanity metrics, like be, be maniacal, be focused, be, be, be great at what your core value proposition is. And then as you build your early team, less is more, you know, you, you need a lot of people when you're trying to do too many things. What is that core group that's going to deliver and how do you bring on people who are both? And by the way, this is incredibly difficult to do, but that are both, uh, I think about sort of like a nine box exercise, people who can both do the job, but also have potential to grow. Um, you know, sometimes you see folks go and hire the like really experienced, you know, a 22 year old founder go and hire the, you know, 45 year old salesperson because they've got all the experience, but are they going to be the right? And I don't mean this to be ageist, like I'm, I'm old, so whatever, I'm allowed to say it. But like, how do you think about making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that are going to challenge you? I mean, everyone's heard the cliche, like, you know, surround yourself with people that are better than you, but that is real. I, I said it a lot in my career as an operator. I didn't really understand it or believe it or li live it until 10 years into my operating life where I, I set a bar for myself that I didn't just want to hire competent people, but people who truly were way better and smarter and, and, and just like more equipped to do the job that they were doing than I would ever be. And then, then work gets to be a lot more fun and. I do think a CEO's job is first and foremost to make themselves obsolete in the day-to-day -day operating of the business. There's a, somebody told me something once that I, that I thought was really smart, which is for a CEO, your job is to be as high up as you can possibly be in your business, removed from all the day-to-day -day operations. Like your job is not to make the trains run. Your job is to live above the trains running. Your job is to be there strategizing for the future, planning for 
what this company could be and, and not getting mired in the day-to-day unless there's a crisis. And then you go as deep as you possibly can be. You get in on the dirtiest ground floor. You take total responsibility, sleeves rolled up to do every single thing in the muck. You clean up that mess yourself and then you get yourself right back out, out of the day-to-day. And I think that, look, it's hard when you're a seven-person company, a 10-person company, like how high is up and how, and how low is a crisis. But yeah. I think that that school of thought where you are building an early team so that you are not the chief product officer or the head of sales as quickly as possible, empower people to do this stuff and, and live on, live out in market, thinking about what this company can and should be. Yeah, that's great. That's Ben the investor. We're going to do a little bit on Ben, Ben the person, Ben the human. I've been fortunate enough to get to know you. And uh, really have just enjoyed and appreciated a lot of the insights you've shared and, and just some of the wisdom, I think, X, X industry, there's a little more life wisdom that you've shared with me. And I want to make sure we share it with some of the folks here. I'm curious if you could kind of go back and talk to your 18, 19 year old self about the journey that you've been on or, or the one that they might be going on. Just any advice you'd steward their way around how to find what it is that they want to do and and how to kind of find themselves waking up 40 years old, having built a lot of purpose and, and built opportunity for themselves. A few things. The first is, and, I, and we talked about this when we were hanging out last week, just valuing deeper, valuing less yeah. deep everything versus what I think sort of, you know, American culture sort of like pushes us towards, which is, more, 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 bigger, 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 100, 100, 100. It's the life that we lead on social media, on always being connected, on just like living in a world of FOMO. I think, you know, startup world might be the absolute epicenter of FOMO in the universe. And it's not healthy and it's not good and it's not where happiness comes. And so focus on doesn't mean you, you have to only have a few friends, but just like more meaningful interaction and, and, and underlying that be present, like figure out how you can eliminate the distractions in your life of which there are infinite, not to mention in a, you know, world where we're doing half of our meetings over zoom and we're one eye on the screen or one ear on the screen and then on our phone or doing whatever, like, how do you put the yeah. things away and how do you focus? By the way, I struggle with this. Everybody struggles with this. And maybe I struggle with it more than others, which is why I find it to be so important. But uh, I would just tell myself, you know, no FOMO. There's not, you, you can never have everything. And, and as I get older, I get a little bit more comfortable with the idea of being really uh, satisfied experiencing satisfaction, actually being comfortable with my surroundings and my life and not wondering if the person next to me has more. Again, struggle with this, struggle with this, you struggle with this, but I think it's a really important thing that I would have talked to myself a lot about as a, as a, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old. And I think it probably would have been helpful for me. Yeah. Favorite job you've ever had can be five years old doing a lemonade stand, any, any job that you just remember waking up Monday morning, jacked up to do. This is my favorite job that I've ever had. Uh, I, in a funny way, the most 
joyful version of this job was when I had another job because I didn't, I, I had, I put less pressure on myself and felt like I had less of my self-worth tied up in the performance of Lira Hippo. Um, and so I was able to, to do things like a little bit more freely and joyfully. Uh, I, I do think that the bet, the version of myself that will be best at this job is a full-time version of myself. And so, uh, to that end, this is the, this is the right way for me to do this job. I, I loved, I loved investing part-time. There were also, look, I would say the absolute best days of my career were when things were ripping, ripping as a scaled operating company. I say scaled because that was a time when I had an executive team that was locked in that all better than me at what they did. We had, uh, ambitious plans that we were meeting and beating. We weren't looking over our shoulder at, you know, our balance sheet or our bank balances. Those were really, really, really fun times, but they were, you, you paid for that, those highs with really shitty lows, really shitty lows. And I think that for a time in my life was awesome. It's, it's not for me anymore. And by the way, it's one of the reasons I have so much respect for entrepreneurs. I think a lot of people who don't aren't close to this world think it's like some glamor job, like being a founder. And there's moments where it, it does feel that way, but most of the moments are not particularly glamorous. They are cripplingly stressful and very lonely and it's tough. It's tough. And so I have a lot of empathy and respect for, for folks who choose this life, particularly a second or third time. I think coming in, everyone hears it's tough. If you come out of it and you want to do it again, like something is slightly wrong with you, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of wrong with you that I like. So, that's what it takes. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Give me two people who have deeply influenced your life and maybe a little bit on why. I feel like every time I get asked some version of this question, my answers are the same. I always talk about my dad first, you know, he and I have, have had the sort of pleasure of doing a lot of business together, but never in a capacity where one of us worked for the other one. So where we always, you know, brought, we always, I think, brought our own value to the table in a way that felt really natural and where we didn't get into the, I think what, where most of the time there's some competitiveness that gets infused into these sorts of familial relationships. He and I have really avoided that. And part of it is that he's always been more interested in, in making sure that I'm happy than, than that I'm successful genuinely. And so that has been, it's been a good lesson for me in terms of how I want to, you know, it, it's helped inform how I think about my own happiness in my life. It's helped inform the kind of parent that I am. It's helped inform, hopefully, you know, the kind of uh, manager that I am and trying to create a culture where, you know, everyone is given the right to sort of put family first. And, and I think that, that that's, you know, it's critical and to not mention it would just be sort of, I'd really be grasping to try to find two people and not have him be one of them. You know, I think that maybe I'll, maybe I'll give it sort of 
an answer that I've never given before, which is the other one would be my kids. And, and obviously I don't have as much history there. My oldest kid is eight, but they have really, you know, what we talked about earlier about like these learnings, what I would tell my 19 year old or 18 year old self about what's important. Like my, the lived experience of realizing how important it is to be present and to be, uh, to, to really put like being a father as my first priority over, over all other things. That's not to say you don't work exquisitely hard and that you don't need to be doing calls at weird times, but it is, it is, I think really important to have, have priorities in your life and, uh, and to bring your best self to work. You need to feel fulfilled in other aspects of your life. And so that experience of being a parent has been has, has made me just like a way fuller and happier and more competent person, which is going to be beneficial to my career in a million different ways. Super powerful. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I promised you a golf question, so we're going to end on a fun one. Thank for you. For those listening. Thank you ben so is, Ben is a great golfer and, uh, I'm not a great golfer. Let's slish, listen. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate the kindness about Lear Hippo, but I cannot stand by and let you use the word great i'm very that is a good golfer and very fun to play with uh, no i mean you know, like well, come on like let's not go crazy i here. love it fair enough Bye. you are a great ben golfer brian is a great golfer brian hits a two iron 285 290 with a level of consistency that i find to be horrifying i appreciate that give us a life lesson that you've learned on the golf course that you think applies to everything else we do that you might, might not learn unless you, unless you pick up a, a pair of golf clubs and learn how to play that game. Well, I, there, there's one, I think it's a little bit of, a, again, it's like an overused one. And, and I, I think that, you know, I'm not going to be the first person to have this insight, but I find that, you know, I had a really crappy shot. And it's hard for me to clear my head and go to the ball, go up to the ball and sort of like pretend it didn't happen and just go hit the next shot and move on. And sometimes I'm able to rise above my, my low grade rage and mental illness and, and hit a really good shot, my next shot. And you're right back in the hole. Like what, like. You can make up for a bad shot with a great shot if you can just not let yourself get chewed up by a bad situation. And I think that that applies to a lot of aspects of life. I think that that certainly applies to being an investor where if you, beat your, you make a bad bet, something doesn't work out, you lose confidence, you second guess yourself. You can, doesn't mean, by the way, your next shot shouldn't be this is actually maybe I'll, I'll really like over, I'll really just kill this yeah, analogy, but your next shot, sometimes you hit the, you hit a crappy shot and then you're like, okay, well, I'm, I'm still 240 out. I'm going driver from the deck. Like I got to make right. up for my crappy shot and you get yourself into more trouble. And I think that sometimes as an investor, you could, you don't need to make up for something that doesn't go right with the next bet. You got to stay true to 
your strategy, to your philosophy, to the way that you do business. And you're not going to, you're not going to fix a past mistake by sort of, you know, like getting bounced off your, your game for the next, for the next one. Um, And by the way, the same thing definitely applies to companies where mm-hmm. a lot of, particularly in the early stages, this is a mental game. And if you feel like things are going in the wrong direction, you can get real bent out of shape. And I can do that as a golfer. I can have a crappy shot. And then four holes later, I've had like, you know, four doubles or triples in a row. I'm like, this is all because I missed a four foot putt. Like, right. So I, I mean, I, so anyway, there you go. I love it. I love it. Life lessons through the game of golf. Ben Lair, founder and partner of Lair Hippo. Thank you so much for joining. Take care. Thanks, Brian. Good man. That's it for this episode of The Road Untraveled. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're interested in learning more, please check us out at theroaduntraveled.io. You can follow me on Twitter at bhalls1, and you can follow The Road Untraveled on Twitter at VC Perspectives. My one ask to you is to share this with someone that you think might enjoy the episode or any of the episodes that we've had. We've really enjoyed building this community and hope to continue building going forward. Hope to see you at the next episode. Thanks for listening.